Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. If you have your copy of God's Word, please open with me to John chapter 14. Our text this morning will be the first 14 verses from John chapter 14. I hope you've turned there and I hope you will follow along with us as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, please grant us illumination now by Your Holy Spirit that we would be able to believe and obey and apply what it is that You have revealed to us in Your Word concerning Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that our faith would be strengthened today. We pray that our hearts would be encouraged. We pray that Your truth would be upheld. We pray, Father, that We would be convicted over our sin where necessary, that we would be encouraged in the faith, that you would do all your good work here among us. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant us discernment as a church body, that we would hold fast to the things that are true. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name, confident that you hear us. Amen. One of the more difficult experiences in life is having to say goodbye. Whether it's a a loved one or a season of life, it's hard when we reach the end of something. A few years ago, one of my uncles had a very brief but severe illness. And by the end, we, we knew that it was time to say farewell. And so each member of the family had the opportunity to file past his bed there in the hospital 
and say goodbye to him. I mean, endings are hard, aren't they? But imagine knowing ahead of time that the farewell was not the end, but the beginning. Imagine knowing ahead of time that something better was coming, something so glorious and so bright that it transformed the goodbye from sadness into joy. Imagine a farewell that actually encouraged you. Incredibly, friends, that's exactly what we find in our text this morning in John chapter 14. Some background will help us here. John 14 is the beginning of what is sometimes called the farewell discourse in John's gospel. The end of Jesus' earthly life is approaching. He will soon die on the cross. It's time to say farewell. But that end is not the whole story. His departure is is not the end, but the beginning. Following his death, Jesus will rise again, opening the way for the disciples to enter the glory of God. So it's a farewell that's also the beginning of something new, something better. Which means that the disciples will one day look back on this goodbye, not with sadness, but but with joy. And that makes the next several chapters very purposeful on Jesus' part. The farewell discourse runs from chapter 14 to the end of chapter 17. And the theme throughout these four chapters is preparation. Preparation. With his departure coming, Jesus prepares his disciples to understand why does he have to leave and how should they live while he is gone. In that sense, you could say that this is the most purposeful goodbye anyone has ever said. It's a farewell that is the beginning of something more glorious than what came before it. So the goal over the next several weeks in our, in our study, the goal is to pay close attention to Jesus' preparation. How should we understand Jesus' death? And then how should we live until his return? He's preparing his disciples. That's what we need to pay attention to, that theme of preparation. Today, specifically, Jesus highlights three blessings that will come to his disciples only because he leaves. Three blessings that will be theirs because he is going away. Three experiences that will mark their lives because he will lose his life for their sake. Each one should be a great encouragement to our faith. So, let's begin our study of the farewell discourse by by diving in here to Jesus' preparation. Three blessings that come only because the Lord departs for a time. The first blessing is found in the first seven verses. Through Jesus, disciples will dwell in God's presence. That's blessing number one. Through Jesus, disciples will dwell in God's presence. The end of chapter 13, you may remember, was very troubling. Jesus predicted both his departure and Peter's denial. It was a shocking end to the chapter. And it raises the question, has Jesus' entire ministry been for naught? If Peter falls away, will all of the disciples fall away in the end? It was troubling. Jesus knows this. So he begins his farewell with a word of comfort. Look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
There's a striking contrast at work in this verse. If you look back to verse 21 of chapter 13, you'll see that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. But here in verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples to not be troubled. It's the same word. Jesus was troubled, but the disciples ought not to be troubled. That contrast is remarkable, friends. If someone is going to endure the trouble of salvation, it will be Jesus, not the disciples. If someone's going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and live, it will be Jesus, not the eleven. He's the good shepherd, remember? So he always goes ahead of his sheep. And that means his preparation begins with comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. And his comfort is deeper than sentiment. Jesus doesn't merely tell the disciples, hey, don't worry about it, it's not that bad. He tells them how to receive this comfort. Look at the next phrase in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. According to Jesus, the answer to trouble is faith in him. In this context, faith has the sense of trust. When Jesus says, believe in me, he's calling his disciples to trust him. To trust that his departure is not the end, but the beginning. And this trust is an ongoing action in the disciples' part. We need to be clear on this. When Jesus says, believe in me, he is not referring to a one-time event that checks the box of faith on the Christian checklist. He's talking about an ongoing trust even a daily trust. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Day by day, you entrust yourself to Him. Believing that He is who He says He is, that His word is true, and that His work is sufficient. That's how faith drives out trouble. By daily entrusting ourselves to Jesus, believing that He is who He says He is, and He will do what He has promised to do. It's not a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. Jesus goes on in verse 2 to tell us what specifically we are to believe about him. We are to trust his faithfulness to save us. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If you grew up reading the King James like I did, then you know this verse in the King James says, in my father's house there are many mansions. We used to sing this old hymn when I was a kid, Mansion Over the Hilltop. Anybody ever sing that song before? I won't sing it. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop and that bright land where we'll never grow old. It's a song about heaven. And at the core, that's what Jesus is describing in verse 2. Why is he going away? He's going away to prepare a place for his people in heaven. But we need to do some careful thinking here. At times, our perspective on heaven is shaped more by our imagination than it is by the Bible. So we need to do some careful thinking. The glory of verse 2, verse 2 is glorious, but the glory of verse 2 is not well-furnished mansions. The glory of verse 2 is not streets of gold in well-manicured heavenly subdivisions. 
The glory of verse 2 is that God is there. Friends, that's the glory of heaven. We get God. We get to be with God. Is that what excites you the most about entering glory? When you envision the culmination of your life, is it God who provides the deepest comfort to your soul? I pray that it is. In fact, that's a good way to pursue spiritual maturity as a Christian. Each of us ought to regularly pray for God to be our deepest desire. Pray Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? The glory of heaven is that God is there. The blessing of heaven is that you and I get to be with God. And the disciples here in John 14 ought to trust that Jesus will surely bring them into God's presence. Look at verse 3 where Jesus anchors the disciples' faith in his own faithfulness. Verse 3, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus' faithfulness is the guarantee of our entry into glory. If you write down anything from today's sermon, perhaps you ought to write down that. Jesus' faithfulness is the guarantee of our entry into glory. He's making an argument in verse 3. Follow his logic. If he goes ahead to prepare, then he will surely come again to get us. That's the entire goal of preparing so that you can reach the culmination of it. So that means if even one disciple failed to enter God's presence, then Jesus would have been unfaithful. But that's unthinkable, isn't it? Perhaps the entire point of John's gospel is to reveal that Jesus is the faithful Son of God. So if I go, Jesus says, if I'm going to go away, then that surely means I'm going to come back and get you. If he dies and rises, in other words, then we will surely be saved in him and through him. Mark it down. Whatever Jesus does, he does completely, perfectly, and faithfully. And that includes bringing his people into glory. If I go away, he says, then I'm surely going to come back. And I'm going to take you to where I am. Ultimately, this is why the disciples ought not to be troubled. Why should they not be troubled? Because Jesus is preparing a place for, him, for them. And they know the way to get there. Just like Jesus says in verse 4. They know the way and they can trust him. This is all wonderful gospel truth, isn't it? We could go back through these verses and I could preach a whole other set of points because the verses are that rich. It's an incredible paragraph. And yet sometimes even the most glorious truth can take a moment to set in. (laughs) I know that it does for me. And that's why I'm very thankful for Thomas in verse 5. Thomas hears these glorious words and Thomas goes off on a rabbit trail. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? If you remember the end of chapter 13, you'll know the disciples have been fixated on where Jesus is going. He's predicted his departure, and they're all caught up on where are you going? That's what Peter was asking about. And now Thomas picks up on that same fixation, and he takes it one step farther. Since the disciples don't know the where, then how can they know the way? 
Thomas, it seems, is confused and he's still troubled. He's not comforted at all. So, Jesus, very patiently, answers Thomas's question with perhaps the clearest statement in the entire gospel on Jesus' person and work. Notice Jesus' answer, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. On one level, verse 6 is making a simple but powerful point. Thomas asks about the way to enter God's presence. Jesus answers with himself. Only God can open the way into the presence of God, and that's who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. Thomas thinks he needs more insight about where Jesus is going, or maybe some new technique about how to get into glory. Jesus dispels all of that by simply but powerfully saying, I am the way. Jesus alone is the way. Since only God can open the way into the presence of God, Jesus is the way. At the same time, the simplicity of that, of that statement also runs a, a bit deeper. Think about those three titles in verse 6. The way, the truth, and the life. Those three titles capture who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Because Thomas asked about the way into glory, we should take the way as the principal title in verse 6. The other two titles, the truth and the life, inform how we understand the way. So just think about it for a second. As the truth, Jesus alone reveals God. To know God, we must look to Jesus, who tells us the truth about God. This is why Jesus is the way, for he alone tells the truth about God, because he is God. As the life, Jesus alone possesses life, the life of God within himself. Indeed, Jesus' resurrection will be the source of spiritual life for all of God's people. This too is why Jesus is the way. He alone can give life because he alone is life. That's the glory of verse 6. Jesus is the way because he is exclusively the truth about God and the life of God given to the world. And that note of exclusivity is essential. In verse 6, I want you to hear me on this. In verse 6, Jesus, without any hesitation or doubt, rules out the possibility of finding salvation in anyone other than Him. As Christians, this is not something we should shy away from or apologize for. Jesus Christ is the exclusive Savior of mankind. Jesus Christ is exclusive in His own understanding of that identity. What about faithfully practicing Hindus? They are not saved. What about faithfully practicing Muslims? They are not saved because they do not trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is exclusive. Only those who trust in Jesus will enter glory. Only those who trust in Jesus come to a true knowledge of God. Only those who trust in Jesus receive spiritual life. Christ and Christ alone is the Savior. There is no other. 
So before we go one verse further, before we take another step in the exposition, I'm just going to pause right here and call you to trust in Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian this morning, the Lord Jesus has told you himself the truth about who he is. The words of John 14 are Jesus' words to you. If you're not a Christian, Jesus has spoken to you in this text, his word. He alone is the way. How do you get to God? Only through faith in Christ, verse 1. What happens when you trust Christ? You receive the promise of dwelling with God forever, verse 2. Is there any other way to get to glory and be saved with God? No, Verse 6, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so I'm going to plead with you, if you're not a Christian this morning, turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ for he alone can save you. His exclusive claim to salvation applies to you. You cannot provide the way to your own salvation. You cannot provide the truth that you need to know God. You cannot be the source of your own spiritual life. Only Christ can do those things. You cannot save your own soul. You also can't deliver your own soul from trouble. If you're not a believer today, I just want to talk very plainly to you. If you're not a Christian, you know those moments when something deep inside your heart, your conscience is telling you, that you're, you're missing something, that something is off. You know those moments, perhaps in the middle of the night, perhaps in those quiet drives home from work, and you think to yourself, is, th- is this it? Is this all that I have? Friends, at that moment, the trouble of your soul is God's mercy to you, telling you that you are made to know God. And Christ alone is the answer to that trouble. And so the scriptures are pleading with you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe in him. You trust that he alone will save you. And so if you're not a believer today, if you've just come with a friend or perhaps your mom and dad have brought you to church, this is the one thing that you need to hear. Jesus Christ himself speaking to you from his word. Trust him. Trust him. Through Jesus and only through Jesus Disciples will dwell in the presence of God and so we plead with you to trust in Christ and be saved. The second blessing of this text is an extension of the first. In verses 8 to 11, we learn that through Jesus, disciples will see God's glory. That's blessing number two. Through Jesus, disciples will see God's glory. In verse 7, Jesus makes clear what is implied. In verse 6, to know Jesus is to know God. But just like Thomas before him, Philip doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. Look at Philip's, look at Philip's statement, verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. What is Philip asking Jesus to do? Most likely, Philip wants a, an undeniable demonstration of God's presence and glory. So think of Moses on Mount Sinai. Or Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember those moments in the Old Testament? 
no one in those moments doubted that God was present. Because the mountain was thundering and fire was falling from heaven and destroying things. God displayed his power in an undeniable way. And most likely, that's what Philip is asking Jesus for. He's saying, Jesus, just dispel all the doubts by giving us a mountaintop experience. If you'll just give us a mountaintop experience, Jesus, then we won't be troubled when you leave. we, we We won't be bothered. Jesus' answer points out the flaw in Philip's question. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see Jesus is to see the glory of God. That's a profound sentence. To see Jesus is to see the glory of God. That's what Philip doesn't yet understand. The disciples don't need a mountaintop experience to encounter the glory of God. The glory of God is standing in front of them in flesh and blood, and his name is Jesus Christ. Older theologians would say that Jesus narrates God for us. And that's a good way to think of verse 9. Jesus, through his character and through his ministry, tells us the truth about God. The Son narrates the Father. He, he tells us what God is like. Philip doesn't fully understand this. So in verse 10, Jesus explains in more depth what it means that he narrates the Father. Look again at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, Jesus explains a very important theological concept in that verse, and it's called mutual indwelling. Within the triune God, we're going we're gonna to go, we're gonna go for a minute here to the deep end of the swimming pool when it comes to understanding God, okay? So just track with me for the next five or six paragraphs. Mutual indwelling. Within the triune God, each person of the Godhead indwells one another. Or, as Jesus says in verse 10, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And through this indwelling of one another, each person shares fully in the divine nature of God. This is why we confess that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. There's a mutual indwelling within the triune God. But this mutual indwelling does not make the persons of the Trinity the same. This is key, friends. Many a heresy has sprouted up by misinterpreting verses like verse 10. When Jesus says the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, he is not saying that the Father and the Son are the same person. Each person within the Godhead, is distinct, though each person shares fully in what it means to be God. But how do we know that each person in the Godhead is distinct? If you've ever had Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door, they'll tell you that Christians just made up the Trinity and read it back into the Bible. Well, is that true? Does the Bible actually teach this? That there are distinct persons within the one God? 
Yes, this is what the Bible teaches. And if you look at verse 10, you'll find that Jesus himself taught this. Jesus himself taught that the persons are distinct. Notice notice the end of verse 10 where Jesus refers to speaking on the Father's behalf. You see at the end of the verse, Jesus does not speak on his own authority. Jesus is not out there claiming to be God because he has some delusions of grandeur. Jesus speaks only what the Father tells him to speak. Now here's the fascinating part in verse 10. Jesus then goes on to say that his speaking is the Father's working. Did you catch the shift in verse 10? Look closely at verse 10. Jesus shifts from speaking the words that I say to doing. The Father does his works. You see, he goes from speaking, he's the one speaking, to the Father working. That shift is not insignificant. That shift is the mark of distinct persons operating together in unity. The Son's speaking is part of the Father's working. So to say it differently, through Jesus' ministry, the Father is working himself. Through Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the truth, the Father is working to reveal himself. This is why, in verse 11, Jesus calls Philip to believe the works that he performs. If Philip can't grasp Jesus' words, then he should at least believe Jesus' works, turning the water into wine, healing the blind, walking on water, raising the dead. Those works are the proof that the Father is in the Son. So if, if, you, if Jesus is, is in a sense saying to Philip, if you can't understand what I mean when I say the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, then don't, don't worry about understanding that. Just remember that I raised Lazarus from the dead. And believe me. That the Father is in me. So that shift in verse 10, from Jesus' speaking to the Father's working, friends, the the whole triune nature of God is bound up there in seed form in that shift. This is just one place in the Bible where we see the distinct persons of the one God. One God, distinct persons who mutually and dwell one another. So the next time that the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and says, can they talk to you about God? Invite them in and tell them that they're wrong. Say it lovingly. But from John 14, show them that Jesus himself understood that this is how God is. Now, why does any of this matter? All of this theological talk about the Trinity and persons of the Godhead. How does this help me tomorrow when I wake up and I'm unsure of how to deal with the trouble that still lingers in my soul? Why does any of this matter? It matters because this is how we know God. And trusting God is the answer to our trouble. It matters because this is how we know God, through His Son. And knowing God is the reason we exist. Knowing God is the reason you're alive. Knowing God and making Him known is the reason God made you. Life is found in knowing God. Salvation is found in knowing God. True blessing comes through knowing God. In short, every good we have is found in the living God. And we only know God through the Son. So the doctrine of the Trinity that we've just been talking about is not an abstract reflection. This is not the subject for theologians to argue about in ivory towers and and write esoteric books that nobody but their other friends read. 
The doctrine of the Trinity is essential to living the life of faith. What do you do when your soul is troubled? You believe in God. How do you even know what God is like so that you can believe Him? By looking to His Son who reveals Him in the Gospel. Let's remember that very powerful statement from John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Apart from Christ, we would not know God as He is. But through Christ, we do know God, and in knowing God, we can trust Him and find that comfort that Jesus talks about in verse 1, where our hearts need not be troubled. Through Christ... We know God, and we are saved. And friends, that means that you and I stand in an incredibly blessed position as Christians. I want to emphasize this to you for just a moment in hopes of encouraging you to press on and press deeper in your walk with the Lord. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you as a Christian know more of God than Moses did. You, as a Christian, know more of God than Isaiah did. You know more than David did. The believer in Jesus Christ knows more about God than even the angels do. Angels long to look into what we have seen. And what have we seen? We have seen God in the face of Jesus Christ, in his gospel. That's the beauty of this text in John chapter 14. Jesus is reminding you of that blessed position in which you live. To see Jesus is to know God. Friends, let that profound blessing, greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than David, greater than the angels, let that profound blessing drive you tomorrow to do this incredible, privileged thing. Take up your Bible and read. And know God. Because he's revealed himself in his son. Through Jesus, disciples see the glory of God. That's awesome to consider, isn't it? We could stop the sermon at this point and we would be blessed. But there's five more pages. Because Jesus takes things one step further in our text, he's not done. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus moves from seeing God to joining with God in his work. This is the third and final blessing from this text. Blessing number three, through Jesus, disciples will join in God's works. We see God's glory, and now through Jesus, disciples will join in God's works. Verse 12 is jaw-dropping. I had to think about verse 12 for a while this week. If verse 12 were not in Scripture, I don't think any human being would have the audacity to say what this verse says. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now, I told you it was audacious. The believer in Christ will do greater works than what Jesus accomplished in his ministry. I told you, you would not say it if it wasn't in the Bible. That's a stunning statement, isn't it? Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. 
what in the world does Jesus mean by doing greater works? What is he talking about? The key, I'll argue, is the last phrase in verse 12. Look at the very last clause. Why will we do these greater works? Because I am going to the Father. Friends, that's a shorthand reference for Jesus' resurrection and ascension when the Son returns again to the glory of the Father. So when Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father, he is shorthand summarizing the fact that he's going to die, rise again, ascend once more to the right hand of the Father. That's what he's talking about. So let's just zoom out for a minute and think about redemptive history for, for a moment. Because this will help us understand what the greater works are in verse 12. I told you it's a profound verse. You had to think about it for a while. So let's just zoom out and think for a second on about redemptive history. What else occurred after Jesus ascended again to the Father? What occurred after that? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, right? Which marked the arrival of the new covenant. And this new covenant is greater than what came before. The old covenant was a shadow of the good things to come. If you've been in uh, Joe Humphrey's Sunday school class on Hebrews, then you've heard this. The old covenant was a shadow of the good things to come. The glory of God, for example, in the old covenant was always hidden behind the veil of the temple. Now, in the new covenant, the glory of God is revealed fully in Jesus Christ. The Spirit in the old covenant was given in a temporary manner. Now, in the new covenant, the Spirit is received in full. So, in this way, the new covenant is greater than what came before it. Not in the sense that the old covenant was bad or flawed, but in the sense that the old covenant was a shadow. And the full light, the full glory, we could say, is now shining in the new covenant. Friends, all of that redemptive history, all of that redemptive history is wrapped up in Jesus' statement, because I am going to the Father. He has in view his death, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Spirit, and the beginning of the new covenant. He's looking, he's looking ahead to that new covenant era, and under that new covenant, those who belong to Christ will do greater works. Believers will proclaim the fullness of God's salvation through Christ's blood, something that was hidden under the law. Believers will proclaim the fullness of God's glory, something that was hidden behind the veil in the temple. Believers will receive the assurance of salvation through the Spirit, something that the repeated sacrifices of the law could never provide. Those are the greater works that Jesus refers to. Believers are not greater than Jesus. That's not the point of verse 12. Believers do greater works because of Jesus. Because of his sacrifice on our behalf, which brings about the outpouring of the Spirit and begins the new covenant, Verse 12 is an anticipation of that something better. That's the greater work. It's living in the fullness of the new covenant. And perhaps the greatest of these great works is the access that we have to God in prayer. Look at verse 13. Jesus goes from the greater works in verse 12 to verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
complete and open access to God through Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 13. The priests of the old covenant did not enjoy that kind of access, but believers in Christ do. We come boldly into God's presence through prayer because we come through Jesus' blood. That's what it means to come in Jesus' name. Jesus is not saying that you have to say, in Jesus' name I pray, every time that you pray. Rather, his point is that we come to God cleansed by his blood, empowered by his resurrection, sanctified by his spirit. That's asking in Jesus' name, verse 13. And that kind of prayer, that kind of prayer is one of these greater works that Christ says we will do. That kind of believing prayer. Do you, do you struggle to, to, to believe this? That prayer in Christ's name is a greater spiritual work than anything under the old covenant? Do you struggle to believe that your, your offering of prayer in Christ's name is greater than the day of atonement sacrifices that the, that the priests offered? That's hard to grasp, isn't it? But friends, that's the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice. By laying down his life, Jesus opens the way into God's presence. And through that access, we join with God in this great work of making his glory known. That's why Jesus adds in verse 13, look at verse 13, that phrase that he adds, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Prayer in Jesus' name is not a divine hotline to get whatever we want. Prayer in Jesus' name is seeking the Father's glory above all. So, in verse 14, when Jesus says if we ask anything in His name, He will do it, He is not promising that we will get every prayer answered the way that we want. My wife and I prayed this one prayer for 11 years. And it was never answered the way that we asked God to answer it. Did God's purpose fail? No. His wisdom is just greater than ours, so we trust Him. So verse 14 doesn't mean that whatever you ask in Jesus' name, God is bound to answer it the way that you want Him to do. That's not the promise of verse 14. The the promise of verse 14 is something better. Here it is. It's the promise that prayer for God's glory will always be answered according to God's will. That's the promise. Because that's what God is doing on earth through the gospel. He's bringing glory to himself. So how do we put that into practice? I don't know about you, but I want to do the greater works of verse 12. When Jesus says, you're going to do greater works, I want to do that. So how do I obey this? What does does this kind of prayer look like? Well, friends, I think the answer is actually really simple. It's twofold. One, you come boldly into God's presence and make your requests known. That's how you honor the sacrifice of Christ. You come boldly into his presence and you make your requests known to God. Tell him, ask him, plead with him. That's what you do on this hand. And then on the other hand, you end that prayer by saying, not what I will, but your will be done. That's praying for God's glory to be revealed in whatever way he knows to be best. That's how you apply Jesus' teaching on prayer. Make your bold requests. Boldly ask God. Boldly plead with Him. 
and then conclude that bold petition with the humble statement of, not what I will, but what you will, Father. That's believing prayer as I understand it. That kind of prayer honors Jesus' sacrifice and it prioritizes the glory of God over my preferences. And when we pray like that, boldly, with humility, when we pray like that, we can rest in the knowledge that whatever we ask in Jesus' name, God will do for His glory's sake. I hope that application helps you. More than the specifics, though, I hope that it just renews your desire to pray. Perhaps this is the most important application from the whole section. Just notice the flow of what Jesus does. Verse 12, you will do greater works. And then verse 13, what, what does Jesus highlight? Prayer. Prayer is no small thing. Prayer in Jesus' name is in one sense the most basic way that we glorify God. We come to God in Jesus' name, joining with God in the work of glorifying himself throughout all the earth. Make your request boldly and do so with humility. So that's the beginning of the, the farewell discourse. Jesus will soon depart, but before he does, he prepares his disciples for how, he ought, how they ought to live until he returns. And if this is the beginning of the farewell, imagine the blessings that lie ahead. I hope you'll continue with us in that journey until the next Lord's Day. May God encourage you with the hope that you will one day dwell with him. May the Spirit strengthen you to know God through Christ's word. And may Christ embolden you in believing prayer for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help that we would be able to both believe and obey and apply what it is that the Lord Jesus has taught us himself from John 14. Grant us grace, Father. Bear fruit by your Holy Spirit. Bear fruit, Father, for the glory of Christ and for the good of our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.